We have an anchor that keeps the soul steady. The Anchor of the Soul with Mike Hickson, preacher for the Olive Branch Church of Christ in Olive Branch, Mississippi. Grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. And now, Mike Hickson. The bulk of our lesson today will center around one of the great prophets of God. And as you look at 1 Kings chapters 18 and 19, you find Elijah the prophet in a great showdown on Mount Carmel. One of the great victories in his prophetic ministry. Followed by a very difficult time in his life when the wife of King Ahab, Jezebel, sought to take his life. When I read this account, one of the things that stands out to me is the fact that there are mountains and valleys in the lives of all of us. It would be great if we could always stay on the mountain, if life always went as expected. Many of us would relish a life without troubles and trials and tribulations and temptations. And yet sometimes it's not necessarily when we're on the mountain that we learn, but rather when we're in the valley. I think sometimes some of the greatest lessons that we learn in life are not from our victories, but rather from our failures. And I think what you see in looking at this great text today is the problem of discouragement and despondency. Many of us become discouraged. And I really believe that one of the greatest tools of the devil is discouragement. It's so easy to get discouraged and despondent to become down and out. And there are times when we become discouraged and we wonder if that cloud will will ever pass. And the good news is that many times it does. In the Bible, in Hebrews chapter 12, the writer encourages us to look to the great example of Jesus. And he talks about how effectively he ran the race. Ultimately, to secure for us redemption. But in calling to mind the great example of Jesus, he points out that we can become weary and discouraged in our souls. So yes, discouragement is very real, and sometimes we become discouraged in life, and when we get down in those valleys, it can seem very bleak. Sometimes it's tough to look at life optimistically. And we become a pessimist. So let's look at 1 Kings chapters 18 and 19 together. I want to begin by first of all talking about the triumph of Elijah. Elijah, of course, one of the great prophets of God, as I said a moment ago. And Elijah was effectively used by God in many, many ways. Elijah prophesied during a very darkened time in the history of Israel. One of the real problems was Baal worship. Ahab was on the throne and it was the ninth century. Somewhere around 875 B.C. 
to around 850 B.C., Ahab had married a woman by the name of Jezebel. And she was the daughter of a king. And if you look at that relationship, you'll find out that she exerted a tremendous amount of influence in the life of Ahab. As a matter of fact, she caused him to become much more wicked in many ways. As a matter of fact, he became very idolatrous. He was very idolatrous. So her influence was certainly seen in his life. And so as we think about the triumph of Elijah, the first thing I want you to understand is that he was courageous in the face of evil. Now, what we're going to find in looking at chapter 18 is that Elijah called on a man by the name of Obadiah, who was over the household of Ahab and Obadiah feared God, and he had sheltered some of God's prophets in days gone by, some 100 prophets of God, because Jezebel had massacred many of the prophets of the Lord. He had, however, taken a 100 of them and hidden them and fed them with bread and gave them water to drink. So Ahab calls upon Obadiah to set up a meeting, a meeting between him and King Ahab, and let me tell you what, Obadiah was reluctant, fearful that that meeting might not take place and then King Ahab would have his head. So there was the call for Ahab and then there is this conversation that takes place between the prophet and Ahab. And if you read in verse, well, verse 16 of chapter 18, The text tells us that Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab then goes to meet with Elijah. And I can almost imagine or see Ahab as he in the distance sees this prophet of God. And listen to what he says. Is that you, O trouble of Israel? Isn't it somewhat ironic that he chastens the prophet as being one who causes trouble in Israel when, in effect, he was the one causing all the trouble. He was the one that had led God's people into idolatry in many ways. And so, Elijah says, I've not troubled Israel. He said, but you and your father's house have, in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and you have followed the Baals. So you think about the courage that it took to meet, as we would say, the face of evil. You and I today were called upon to be courageous in our stand for what is right. And sometimes when we have to stand toe-to-toe with that which is wrong and evil, it tests us. But then, if you would, think about how he conquered the foes of evil. In verse 19, the text tells us that Elijah instructed Ahab to gather all Israel to him on Mount Carmel. Now, Mount Carmel rose some 1,700 feet above sea level. If you've ever been to Chattanooga and been on the top of Lookout Mountain, you would be probably pretty close to equivalent in height. I think... Lookout Mountain rises about 1,800 feet. So this great showdown occurs with the prophets of Baal. 
Elijah tells, tells the people to choose two bulls. And he said, you choose one for yourselves, I'll take the other. In verse 23, he instructs them to cut that bull in pieces, to lay it on the wood, and put no fire under it. He said, I'll prepare the other bull, and I'll lay it on the wood, but he said, I won't put fire under it either. And the idea is, to test, if you please, Elijah wanted them to cry out to Baal. Let Baal come down and consume this great sacrifice. Well, if you read the text, you find out that Baal never responded. Matter of fact, the text tells us in verse 26, they took the bull which was given to them, they prepared it, and then they called the name of Baal from morning even till noon. And they cried out, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice. The Bible says they leaped about the altar which they had made. And verse 27 says that Elijah mocked them. And he said, cry aloud, for he's a God. Maybe he's meditating. Possibly he's busy. Maybe he's on a journey. Or perhaps he's sleeping. In verse 28, they cried aloud and cut themselves, as was their custom. In verse 29, when midday was past, that they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. There was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Then Elijah calls upon the people to come near to him. And they come near, and then he takes 12 stones, which represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And he says, or rather in verse 32, the Bible says that with those stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he makes this trench around the altar. And then the Bible says he places the wood in order. He cuts the bull in pieces. And then amazingly, he literally drenches the wood, the offering, with water. And there's a reason for that. Because he wants them to see that there is a God in Israel and that God is not Baal. And so after having drenched the sacrifice in water, listen to verse 37. Well, in verse 36... Elijah said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you're God in Israel and that I am your servant, and that I've done all these things at your word. He said, Hear me, O Lord, that this people may know that you're the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back. And then verse 38, The fire from the Lord fell from heaven. And the text says it consumed the burnt sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. When the people saw it, the Bible says they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. So after this great showdown on Mount Carmel, the text tells us that the prophet Elijah had those false prophets Slain. So you think about this tremendous victory, his triumph, 
But then I want you to see in the second place as we look at our text, not just the triumph, but the threat. There was a threat made to Elijah. A bounty was placed on his head. Look if you would at chapter 19 now. The bounty that was placed on the head of the prophet Elijah was by none other than Jezebel. So she sends a messenger to the prophet. And this messenger has a message. And listen to what the text says. After having heard that Elijah had this great showdown and had executed all the prophets of God with the sword, she sends this messenger. And she said, So let the gods do to me, and more also. If I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow, about this time. Now just think about that for a minute. You know, sometimes we get a telephone call, a text, an email. Maybe someone shows up at our door and they've got bad news. Let me just tell you, you think you've had some bad news in the past. The prophet here has a bounty placed upon his head. And Jezebel is saying to him, let me tell you what, you're going to be dead in just a short matter of time. So I think about the burdened heart of Elijah. What stands out to me as is this. The distress that he felt could have destroyed him. Now, the writer tells us the mindset of Elijah. And I would suggest to you today that he saw the wrong thing and he said the wrong thing. And we're thinking about the distress that could have destroyed him. Verse 3. And when he saw that, because she said, So let the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. When he saw that, what did he do? He arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. And the Bible says he went a day's journey into the wilderness, sat down under a juniper tree, and he prayed that he might die. He said, That's enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Now, you talk about discouragement. He's just enjoyed this great victory. I mean, triumph. This showdown has proven to Israel that, look, there's just one God. And now a bounty's on his head, and let me tell you what, he's running for his life. Sometimes when tough times come, our perception becomes skewed. We don't necessarily see things clearly, do we? And sometimes it's very easy for us to become despondent, discouraged, wave the white flag, as Elijah did. Elijah's ready to die. He's had enough. And you think about, here is this prophet of God and all the great work that he's done. And his design, his intent has been to bring the children of Israel back to God. Maybe he felt like a failure. Maybe he felt like his ministry had not been as effective as it could have been. So I think about that distress that could have destroyed him. 
But then the compassion, the compassion that calmed him. Note if you would what is said in verse 5. As he lay and slept under a juniper tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Then he looked and there by his head was a cake baked on on coals and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. The angel comes back a second time, touches him and says, Arise and eat because the journey is too great for you. And he arose, ate, drank, went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God, which would have been quite a journey. Now you think about the compassion that was shown, the compassion that calmed him. Two things here. First, I think about the presence of the Lord. Elijah is going to talk about how he feels all alone. Sometimes when tough times come and we're faced with distress that can potentially destroy our faith, our reasoning process, our perception becomes skewed, and we don't necessarily see things as we should. And sometimes we have this idea that we're all alone. You know, the Hebrew writer said, speaking of God, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, God used angelic beings in days gone by in a very effective way. And though God does not use angelic beings in that manner today, His presence is still with us, isn't it? And you think about Elijah. He's wanting to die. He's despondent. He's discouraged. And as I said a moment ago, sometimes your perception becomes very skewed. David is a classic example of somebody that faced the mountains and valleys of life. And you'll see David on many occasions up on the mountain and then you'll see him down in the valley. And no doubt when we're in the valley and we're looking up, we're wondering, okay, what's going to happen? In Psalm 142, David, the Bible says, is overwhelmed. And he's pouring out his heart to God. And he makes a statement that I think is incredulous. He said, refuge has failed me. And then he said, no one cared for my soul. You think that was true? I mean, you think that here's the king of Israel, greatest king in the history of Israel. Do you really think no one cared about David? Sometimes that's how we feel, isn't it? And sometimes we forget about the presence of God. Look, if everyone else forsakes us, if everyone else forgets us, God is still there, isn't he? The presence of God. And then I think about the provisions of God. God made sure that Elijah the prophet had exactly what he needed. We talk about being at the right time, at the right place. Well, is it not true that God provides us with what we need? Listen to the Apostle Paul when he wrote to the church at Philippi. In Philippians chapter 4 verse 19. Where is Paul? Paul is in a Roman prison cell. He's got a guard chained to him. And they're rotating these guards every four to six hours. And Paul is in prison. And you think about the circumstances of prison, it couldn't have been great. And yet Paul is writing to the church at Philippi. He's talking about in chapter 4, he said, The Lord is at hand. The Lord is present. He said, in nothing be anxious, but in everything, with prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. 
And he would say, and the peace of God which surpasses all knowledge will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Do you think the Apostle Paul knew something about the peace that passes all understanding? Hear him when he says, I've learned in whatever state I'm in to be content. And then in verse 13 he can say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And then down in verse 19, listen to what Paul said, but my God shall supply all your need. Do you think Paul believed that? I think he did. Do we believe that? Do we believe in the presence of God, in the provisions of God? You think about how blessed you are. Sometimes it's Sometimes it's tough to see blessings when you're in the valley. Sometimes it's tough to see life clearly and accurately when you're down in that valley. And the devil wants you to stay in that valley. The devil wants you to be discouraged because he understands that when you become discouraged and despondent, there is the possibility that you'll say, you know what, I've had enough. And that you will say, where's God? when I need Him most? Where are the things that I need? So you think about the presence of the Lord, the provisions of the Lord. The distress could have destroyed Him, but the Lord's compassion calmed Him. Third thing I want you to see very quickly in our study, that is the teaching of Elijah. You know, sometimes when we face tough times, what we really need is to go back to school. In other words, we need to learn some things. You, you remember when James said in James chapter 1, verse 2, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. When you're in the middle of the trials of life, do you think you're relishing every minute of those trials? That you're, that you're gleeful over what's going on in your life? No. But when you get through those trials and you look back, can you say, okay, you know what? I've learned some things, haven't I? There's some things that have resonated in my life, and I can see that, you know what? I'm a better person because it has crystallized some things for me. It's helped me to see life more clearly. So Elijah needed to be taught some things. And first I think about the Lord called the prophet out about his attitude. Two times in the context, listen to what God, listen to what God asked. Verse 9, the text says that Elijah had gone into a cave and spent the night. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? Two times he asked that question, what are you doing here? Could I ask you, what are you doing? What are you doing here? You know, sometimes we get discouraged and we become despondent. And there are occasions when somebody needs to call us out or rattle our cage and ask us the same question. What are you doing here? Or maybe, what are you not doing here? Now you think about, this was a personal question, wasn't it? God's not talking to anybody else. He's talking to the prophet. He wants to know, okay, Elijah, what are you doing here? It's a personal question. Not just a personal question, it is a powerful question. Don't you think God's trying to 
Get his attention? Yes. So God's asking him a personal question, a powerful question, a profound question. And sometimes I think in life, when it comes to our spiritual life, we need to ask ourselves, what are we doing? What are we doing here? You know, it might be that we need to make some adjustments. So Elijah's learning some things. There's a second thing. First, the Lord calls the prophet out about his attitude, but he secondly calls him out about his assumptions. Now listen to what, listen if you would to what Elijah says in verse 10. He said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hell, for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel. He said, they've forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altars. He said, they've killed your prophets with the sword. And now listen to him. He said, I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Elijah thought he had been forsaken. You know, sometimes it's easy for us to feel like that, isn't it? I mentioned David a moment ago. When David said, refuge has failed me, there's no one who cares about my soul. Here is Elijah, this great prophet of God. He's been victorious. His name is synonymous with standing for what's right, for courage, bravery, for being a man of God. Sometimes we lose sight of things, don't we? Sometimes do we not feel forsaken? Sometimes, yes, maybe we are forsaken. Do you remember the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4 when he said, At my first defense, he said, No one stood with me. All men forsook me. He said, I pray God that it won't be laid to their charge. But he said, The Lord stood with me and strengthened me. That's the difference right there. Elijah may have felt, for, he may have felt forsaken, but the Lord was with him. So he thinks he's been forsaken, and then secondly, he thinks he's finished. He's on the run for his life, isn't he? He thinks, look, death is imminent. Now, God reminds him of some things. Down in verse 18, God said to him, here's what you need to understand, Elijah. I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. In other words, Elijah, number one, you're not alone. You haven't been forsaken, and you're not finished. God used Elijah in a mighty way. And I want to close by simply saying this. Sometimes when we get down in the valley, we feel forsaken, and maybe we feel like we're finished. What we need to understand is we haven't been forsaken, and it might be the case that God can use us in a greater way. The question is, are we willing to allow God to use us for His good and His purposes? If you're discouraged, I would remind you of a statement made by Winston Churchill many, many years ago. In the throes of World War II, and I can't imagine what a darkened time that must have been in the history of our country. There were a lot of folks that lost a lot of things in that war. But Churchill said, never, never, never 
never give up. I think that's what God would say to us. We can't afford to give up. Do we get discouraged? Yes. Why? Because we're human. But to hold on and go on. And to know that God will be with us every step of the way. If you're here today and maybe you have given up, maybe you're in the valley, and maybe it's been a long time since you've been on top of the mountain. It might be the case that you feel like no end in sight. And you're not a Christian. You know, life's tough. At best, it's tough. But at least as a child of God, you know the Lord's on your side. So if you're not a child of God, why not become a Christian? Why not enjoy the cleansing power of the blood of Christ? You know, on Pentecost Day, those people, some of whom were present, had been guilty of putting Jesus to death. And Peter told them, look, here's what you need to do. Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. In other words, your sins will be forgiven. If you'll do what they did, then you can become what they were, and that's simply a child of God. Thank you for listening to the Anchor of the Soul. Your speaker has been Mike Hickson, preacher for the Olive Branch Church of Christ, located at 9100 East Sandage Road in Olive Branch, Mississippi. To hear this lesson again, go to olivebranchchurchofchrist.org. Tune in next Sunday for more of the Anchor of the Soul. We have an anchor that keeps the soul Steadfast and sure while the billows roll Fastened to the rock which cannot move Grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love